Let's go, folks. Time for the Gibby Show. How you doing, baseball fans? And welcome to the first of four special editions that will run through the month of December of the Gibby Show, presented by Miller Lite, the official beer of Major League Baseball and the Gibby Show. I'm John Arezzi, and as we all know, my podcast partner, the baseball life himself, John Gibbons, was officially hired by the New York Mets to be their bench coach under new Mets manager Carlos Mendoza. Gibby is enjoying a little well-deserved time off. For the next four weeks, we will be here covering the breaking news about the Blue Jays. We'll be bringing on some baseball insiders as our special leadoff guest. And on this show, we bring on someone who's been there covering it all at the baseball winter meetings right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, From the MLB Network, we'll be bringing on Steve Phillips. We also have the first of four Best of Gabbing with Gibby segments brought to you by Tim Hortons with today's show highlighting Gibby's managerial style and his career in the dugout. And inspired by our friends at Miller Lite, we will toast someone special in baseball. The baseball winter meetings are going on right now in Nashville, Tennessee. I've attended the last couple of days. Uh, Today's special leadoff guest has been a very busy man. I've seen him everywhere, TV, listen to him on radio. He's covering the meetings for the MLB Network as one of the lead analysts. In addition, hosting uh, the daily morning show, The Leadoff Spot, on the MLB Radio Network, heard on Sirius XM. He's the former general manager of the New York Mets as well. Uh, assembled the team that made it to the World Series in 2000. It's a pleasure to bring on Steve Phillips. Steve, how you doing? Busiest man, uh, in, uh, yeah. <laughs> busiest man in Nashville. <laughs> it certainly has been a busy day. There's no question about that, but great to be with you again. Uh, yeah, it's our pleasure to have you here. And uh, it's been a crazy baseball winter meetings. This is not your first uh, uh, trip uh, to the winter meetings. I'm sure you've gone to uh, dozens and dozens, but this one has been dominated so far uh, by what has not happened. And what has not happened is uh, Shohei Itani and where he's going to land as perhaps the most high-profile free agent in the history of Major League Baseball. Uh, And uh, the Toronto Blue Jays have emerged as one of the favorites to land Otani. What is the latest that you've heard on Otani and the Jays? So my sense of this is right now that it's down to the Dodgers and Blue Jays. The Giants are on the outskirts of it a little bit. Uh, We know that the Angels are still in a little bit. The Cubs haven't been told they're out, but they feel like they're out, uh, which is enough of an indication for me. And so it does feel like it's down. And and again, maybe it can change. Maybe there's smoke signals being sent up that are different, but it feels like it's Dodgers and Blue Jays. And I got to say, I, you know, I I believe the dot, the Blue Jays are the favorites in this. I thought all along he was going to go to the Dodgers, but the more I've looked at this, you know, Otani didn't take the brand. When he first came over, he took the Angels over the Dodgers, right? And so he doesn't follow what you might think is the the convention or the norm or the expectation. You know, the Angels were a bit of a surprise for all of us that he chose to go there. Uh, And now you start to look at it and think, okay, his brand has grown so big right now that the idea of going to be a Dodger would be sharing the brand platform with a team. He goes to Toronto. He gets all of Canada. He gets all of the United States, and he has all of Japan as part of the international brand that he's building, a chance to win on a regular basis with the roster they have. Every indication I have from talking to sources, they'd be able to afford 
Bichette, Guerrero, and Otani moving forward with this pitching staff they have. They would go out there trying to compete year in and year out. And then you think about from the club's perspective, you know, ownership is a communications company. You know, in LA, it's an investment company. Now, you know, so so you can say, well, you can sell broadcast rights, you can sell sponsorships and ads and all of that. You're going to make a lot of money because of Otani. That's true. They can do that in LA. They can do that in Toronto. But the Rogers Corporation is a, a communications company with the idea of expanding business in Asia. Their core business at an ownership level can make money outside of baseball from the relationship with Otani in baseball. And I think that that would allow them to spend more, to go the extra mile, to be able to try to land him. And so I do think that that because he doesn't make the conventional decision and you don't fly across the country from California to Dunedin uh, just to show or try to keep a team in and as a smokescreen, there's legitimately interest right there. I think, I think, now listen, it's, if he goes to the Dodgers, I'm not going to be shocked, but I, I give the mm -hmm. Blue Jays an edge right now because of all of those reasons. Yeah, if you want to speculate and want to put some odds on this, uh, what would you guess would be the odds percentage that the Jays do get Otani? You know, I would give it better than 50%, you know, not significantly, although you can create a storyline. Look, I can do the Dodgers storyline, comfort level, staying in Los Angeles, the brand of the Dodgers. He's going to connect his brand to the Dodgers brand. It'll exponentially grow him, make it that much more important. Chance to win year in and year out. The medical team that's been working on his elbow are all based in Los Angeles. So it'll be convenient for him to rebuild his core. He's got a foundation and group already set up in L.A. So just going from Anaheim to Los Angeles is a comfort level for him to be able to produce and perform uh, and a chance for him to do it at the highest level of a prestigious organization. I can sell that case. I, it doesn't feel as much like Otani as the storyline for Toronto does. But so I give Toronto the edge, whether it's 55, 45, 60, 40, I give them an edge in this, but I won't be shocked though. I would be shocked if he's a giant. I would be shocked if he's an angel or a cub. And if he's an angel, it would be the worst ending to a story uh, uh, since the end of Game of Thrones. Like the end of Game of Thrones was so <laughs> disappointing to me. If he goes yeah. back to the angels and be like, wait, <laughs> we got all excited and then it's this? Like, what? no mm. way. And so that would be the worst ending for all of us, I think. Yeah, it would be totally anticlimactic for sure. Uh, you spoke to Ross Atkins on your radio show yesterday. And to me, and I've seen the guy do many, many interviews in the past, he looked happy. He looked relaxed. He looked. He was smiling. He almost had a look like the cat who ate the canary. Tell us about the interview with Atkins. And it was was it a different dynamic than you talking to him previously, which, which you've done many times? Yeah. So I will tell you that that you know I I what I find is when a general manager talks to another general manager who who he's heard talk about the game and, and understand the game in a way that he does as an executive. It does disarm him a little bit, and he, he relaxes a little bit more. Because I watched him later in the day with the local media, and I felt a little bit of the tension come back in all of it. So I think there's some part of just talking to another baseball person that he was a little bit looser. He probably was a little tired, and therefore his art, his guard down a little bit. But I also think there, it's exciting when you're in on superstar yeah. players or big-time trades. I've been there at the winter meetings. It's so exciting that it's hard to contain those emotions a little bit 
Uh, and yet, you know, when you feel like there's some criticism coming because you're not answering questions, you're not telling them, did you meet with them or did you not meet with them? You get a little defensive, it clams you up, it tightens you up a little bit. It, it wasn't that way with him in the morning. So you're right. It was a freer sort of interview with him. And I did sense this. They're all in on this. There's a shift in ownership and ownership involvement is a big part of the Otani pursuit. If they don't get Otani, their plan B was Soto. That, that was really clear out of the interview to me as well. Now, with news that Soto may be coming off the board in a trade with the Yankees and that that may be getting close, the Jays are going to have to potentially pivot to plan C if they don't get Otani, which is probably Cody Bellinger uh, uh, or Jung-Hoo Lee, an outfielder from Korea that uh, would probably be plan D uh, in the mix. But, but they're all in right now on Otani. They're going to wait this one out. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty stark contrast seeing the comments from Dave Roberts, who said, yes, we met with him, and John Schneider, who had those scripted answers. And uh, there's always been that speculation from Otani's camp that leaks mean that you're going to get a demerit or it could hurt your chances. Have you ever seen anything like this in, in your history, Steve, of uh, what this gag order has meant to other teams? And wouldn't have made more sense if Otani said, these are the finalists. So at least... All the media would have something to talk about and speculate about other than, you know, what a gag yeah. order is all about you right know, now. Here's the thing. We're going to see the biggest, most significant contract in the history of baseball ever signed by far, like doubling it. I mean, we're, we're getting to the exponential numbers right here. Uh, I'm not going to begrudge the biggest star in our game and the way that they're going about going through free agency. I mean, you know, he doesn't want a spectacle. He's a bit of a mysterious guy. He's a bit of a private guy. I mean, you know, he receives awards with a dog next to him or a cat next to him. I mean, there's no entourage. There's no family. There's no story. It's just him. And so I, I wasn't surprised that he wanted that. And I will tell you that I've been in negotiations for trades with a general manager who has said to me, listen, this can't leak out. If it leaks out before I can sell it to my owner, uh, then it's going to kill any chance of a deal. And it leaked out. You know what it did? It killed the deal. Uh, and, you know, there have been players. Brian Cashman, when he signed Mark Teixeira, it was a stealth move. Nobody saw it coming under the radar. Then next thing you know, they're announcing it because nobody wants spectacles to be able to go through some of these things. So I'm okay with the way Otani's handled it. <coughs> Steve, I want to talk to you about the dynamics of putting together a deal like this. And when it comes to the GM presenting to the owners what the cost would be on a free agent deal um talk to us and i know you haven't been involved in it no one's ever been involved in a deal like this but talk about uh maybe the biggest deal you did as a gm for the mets talk us through the process uh on the executive le level and how this all unfolds so uh you know, when you go through this, you've already been with ownership and, and these are these big contracts are not baseball decisions. They're organizational decisions. Owners are absolutely involved in this because you're spending money that is astronomical and the owner needs to sign off on it and, and approve it because, you know, you can't. It's one thing you got to trade for a middle reliever or sign a guy for four and a half million. The owner's going to be like, all right. You're talking about $500 million, about a half a billion dollars. Uh, you know, that's a quarter of the value of a team like, uh, you know, the Blue Jays. They're probably a $2 billion team. You know, you're talking about 500, you're talking about a half billion dollars, a quarter of the value of the franchise. So owners are involved in these sorts of things uh, and they have to be because if they go wrong, 
you don't want to be out there by yourself on a limb as the general manager. Now, you probably would still lose your job over it if it doesn't go well. Uh, but owners need to be involved and, and they can help the process because when a player is buying in for this long of a contract, this is about the, the longevity, con continuity, and consistency of an organization. Will the owner be there? What's the plan? How much are you willing to invest? How much are you into winning? Are you just looking to make money? Are you willing to invest in winning? If you're signing a guy for this kind of money, he's going to want to know if you have enough money to pay for the players around you. And so ownership's a big part of all of this. And at that point, it's a partnership. So I always like to keep my owners out of the baseball decisions. But when it comes to one like this, so when I signed Piazza, ownership absolutely involved in it, signing off on it, approving it, and, and making sure they were part of the entire process of, of, that, of that negotiation and pursuit of the player as well. For instance, Mets owner Steve Cohen uh, re flew over to Japan to visit with Yashinobu Yamamoto uh, because he wanted to make a statement that this is how serious we are about you. And when you get to the ownership level with a player, that makes a strong statement to a player that, that you're very important to that team. Well, I mean, it uh, really is going to be quite uh, quite an interesting conclusion to the baseball winter meetings. We have just a couple more questions for you, Steve. Uh, can you share with us anything that you might have learned uh, in regard uh, to the Blue Jays uh, with us from the winter meetings? Sure. Yeah. So I think that that obviously the Inan uh, Otani Soto's the Plan B. My every indication that I understand is that Bellinger could potentially be Plan C. Now, the challenge, the fear the Blue Jays have. They wait on Otani. Soto goes off the board to a non-Otani team, the Yankees. And then and then one of the teams that's in on Otani realizes we're not really in, the Giants. And so they go get Bellinger. And then so plans – and then you don't get plan A for some reason. He goes to the Dodgers. Plan B's off the board. Plan C's off the board. And it's like that Bugs Bunny cartoon where at the end, there's a scramble. And at the end, you're standing there without with a very empty bag with nothing in it. And so, you know, there's the, always that risk. The Jays have to stay all in on Otani. They're going to get the decision probably by the weekend. And they, if they lose out on Soto, it's not because they did anything wrong. It's because the Yankees manipulated the timing to force the Padres to make the deal before the Otani thing happened to take the Blue Jays out of it. It's a brilliant play by Brian Cashman. If for some reason the Giants make the move to pivot from Otani before he decides officially to go after Bellinger, it's a brilliant move by Farhan Zaidi to be able to get them off the board before the Blue Jays could get back in and compete. Because if you're willing to pay $500 million for Otani, you're willing to pay the price for Soto. You're willing to pay the price for Bellinger. But, you know, this is the the, the choice the Jays made, and it seems to be the right, right choice for their organization. Yeah, once those dominoes fall, they start to fall quick. So uh, there's a, it's like a chess game. It certainly is. You are listening to The Gibby Show, presented by our friends at Miller Lite. And we want to thank Miller Lite for their support all season right here on the Gibby Show. I'm sure Gibby celebrated by cracking open a Miller Lite when the official announcement was finally made by the New York Mets about his return. And I know he's probably enjoying a Miller Lite or two on his vacation right now. After all, anytime is Miller time, uh, the light beer that tastes like a real beer. Miller Lite, the official sponsor of Major League Baseball and right here. On the Gibby Show. Corner booths, sticky floors, weekdays that feel like weekends. You never forget the way some things taste. Miller Lite, great taste, 90 calories. Tastes like Miller time. Uh, before we let you go, 
uh, Steve, we uh, want to talk uh, to you about the namesake for this show, Gibby himself, John Gibbons. He's back in the majors, being signed by the New York Mets as uh, the bench coach for new manager Carlos Mendoza. Uh, before commenting on the move uh, by the Mets, tell us about your history with John Gibbons. Oh, yeah. So Gibby was drafted in 1980 by the Mets. I was drafted in 1981. Now, he was a bonus baby first-rounder. I always like to tease him. Uh, but a first-round pick with Daryl Strawberry, Billy Bean, and Gibby, both all three in the first round for the Mets that year. Uh, I was drafted in 1981, fifth round by the Mets. And so we were in a structure league together, would go to the ballpark together, became friends there. Uh, and then, you know, he promoted, worked his way through the system. I played seven years in the minor leagues, didn't make it to the major leagues. but when I got back into the front office, I uh, was able at some point to bring Gibby back in as a roving catching instructor, then a minor league coach and manager, uh, and worked closely with her when I was running the Mets minor leagues at the time. Uh, and so we've got a long history together. So he's been a baseball friend for a long time, a personal friend for a long time. And obviously, you know, we've got a great baseball history together, but a friendship. And, and I've been so proud of him, the run he's made as a major league manager as a coach for teams at the major league level. And now this opportunity he's getting in New York. Yeah. I met him in uh, 1981 when I was an executive, uh, young executive for the New York Mets minor league team in Shelby, North Carolina in sure, the Sally yeah. league. And it was uh, me and uh, Gibby and JP Ricciardi uh, sharing a, a little house there in that little town. Uh, but Gibby, I've known for such a long time and I'm so happy for him, even though it means the end of this podcast at the end of the month, uh, I mean, I told him that it was a dream for me, for him to get back where it all started uh, with the New York Mets. And it's universally been a hire uh, bringing Gibby back to where it all started from. And you had such an instrumental part of that uh, phase of his career. And uh, you give a guy a shot and, you know, it leads to where it's led. Ten years in Toronto, back with the Mets. Give us your opinion on the hiring of Gibby by New York to be the bench coach. Yeah, I think he's a great fit. I think it's the perfect fit, honestly. You got a rookie manager, and the noise gets really loud. Things get mo going really fast. And the one thing Gibby has the ability to do, slow it down. He just slows it down. Nothing's too stressful. He can bring everybody back a little bit. Not, not put you to sleep, but just take some of the energy out of it, right? Just, don't, you know, it's all right. Everything's going to be okay. That's exactly what Carlos Mendoza, the manager for the Mets, needs right now. He is the perfect fit for him in that position right there. Having played there, he's got a sense, Gibby does, of what the New York market's like, and he's great with the media. He has that disarming humor and Southern uh, charm that can kind of slow everybody down a little bit and take the energy and, and intensity and anxiety down a level. So I don't think they could have made a better pick and selection for Carlos Mendoza. I think it's a great move for Gibby and for the New York Mets. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And uh, Steve Phillips, we really want to thank you for your time here today. We know how busy we are. We appreciate your insights and uh, have a great rest of the baseball winter meetings. Uh, once again, thank you so much. You bet. My pleasure. Anytime. You guys have great uh, holidays for you and your family. All the best to you. Look forward to talking again soon. All right. Take care. Now it's time for the first of four of the best gabbing with Gibby segments brought to you by Tim Hortons. And speaking of Tim's, Tim Hortons has some tasty beverages and baked goods on their menu for the holidays. Get this, everybody. Non-alcoholic Bailey's flavored Tim Hortons classics are now available, including 
Bailey's Cream Coffee, the Bailey's Latte, Bailey's Cold Brew with Bailey's Flavored Infused Foam, and the Bailey's Ice Cap. Uh, the Ice Cap is perfectly paired with the taste of Bailey's and a whipped topping. Tim also has put out a Bailey's Flavored Twist on one of its most popular donuts by introducing the non-alcoholic Bailey's Boston Cream Dream Donut. It has a non-alcoholic Bailey's flavored cream filling and a sprinkling of chocolate curls. Also available this holiday season are the classics, the chocolate lava dream cookie, the chocolate hazelnut filled muffin, and returning for Tim's for the holiday season, our fan favorites, candy cane hot chocolate, candy cane white hot chocolate beverages. They're all witch warm, sweet, and these deliciously festive hot chocolate offerings are perfect to enjoy on a cold winter day. Only at Tim Hortons. Tim's new non-alcoholic Bailey's flavored holiday menu. Enjoy the classic taste of the holidays anytime with a creamy Bailey's flavored latte. Celebrate the season with the taste of the holidays with Tim's new non-alcoholic Bailey's flavored holiday menu. On today's special Gabbing with Gibby, we will take a look back on Gibby the manager his managerial style and career. And we're going to bring on some of our amazing guests and their stories about Gibby the Skipper. Enjoy this best of Gibby, the manager. Josh Donaldson. <laughs> One thing I'll say, everybody knew where you stood, right? You and I had our battles yep. about things like, yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, I, I, I tell everybody, you know what? Uh, One thing about Josh, you know, you, you get a lot of, players in this game they're really good players you know in the they're really they're just i mean they're playing the game what have you josh is in tune with everything you know we go out to the mound you know uh whether talk to the pitcher make a pitching change and you talk to his baseball about strategy and mm -hmm. when it first the first time you got it you uh when you showed up and you did i'm thinking son of a bitch shut up under my breath going hey, <laughs> I'm the running this team, right? I'm the manager. You know what? And, and then, anyway, and then uh, we got, we got a great story, uh, and, it, and it was a, a huge. But but that was the give and take. And take and finally, I said, you know, what? Josh knows what he's talking about. Maybe I ought to start listening a little more often. So, <laughs> so, I, so, I, so I can so I can remember. You know, I can remember telling you, if, uh, hey, uh, Josh, when you're over at third base, if uh, you think the pitcher we need to make a pitcher change, kind of look at me and give me a little sign. <laughs> I was joking. You know, you know, I got too much pride to do that. But there was no a one question. game. No, my favorite, my favorite was you'd come up to the mound and I'd say, Gibby, what the hell are you bringing this guy in for? And you're like, I got a gut feeling, JD. I got a gut feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I got and an I'd upset say, gut. <laughs> I'd say, are you sure you don't got gas? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah, you saw my appetite, but but hey, what in the most? But, hey, a lot of times you were right. A lot of times you you know it was right, and I remember uh, you nailed it with Joe Beanie, uh, Joe B and Jenny that that year, and I remember it was like the first week he kind of you know had a outing where it went okay, the one that went really well, and he came out of the game one day when you're making the change, and you're like. That kid's gonna get some big outs for us this year, and he did. And um, oh, yeah. and he better. Uh, he better. Yeah. We got nobody else. I, he sure felt better. No, we had no, some guys no, back there. Oh we yeah, had, I was, know that. Of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm messing around. Yeah. But there's one game uh, I got to bring. One of my favorite okay, yeah. stories. It was the Sorry. biggest game of the year. One of the biggest games of my career as a manager, right? 
it's game four down in Texas. Uh, RA's <laughs> pitching, right? So, so, you know, hey, that's the five that we dropped two to, to the Rangers in, in, in Toronto, you know, but there was no panic in our guys. That's one thing about this, you know, that team. You know what? Yeah. Con- confidence could be, right? So we ended up winning yeah. the, uh, uh, the game three. Marco was unbelievable. Strata. Marco pitched a great game. Oh, he was big, big clutch guy. Uh, so yeah. we go in that game four. Dickie's pitching, and uh, we get a nice little lead, and, he, and he's pitching pretty good. But hold up, hold up. Nice little lead. Do you remember what the score was? Was it seven to or six to seven to one or two? Or it something? was like seven to one or something like that, or eight to one. Go ahead, okay, keep your story but, going. But, but I, okay, but see, that matters. This was kind of on the verge when analytics was coming in. But see, I was a I was an analytics dream before analytics. <laughs> Because it, it was the third time through the lineup. But you know what? Nobody thought about it back then. See? And I get chastised for being anti-analytics. I was so far ahead of the game. But anyway. You're way you're so far ahead. I don't even know what they're thinking. But well, well, beforehand, I see you guys, if you're not thinking about the whole team like I was, you know, David, don't forget <laughs> David, David Price offered or uh he said, I'll be the left-hander because Brett Cecil got hurt in uh and Loopy, his wife, was in the hospital, so he he had to be there. So we had no left-hander, right? They, they got some pretty good, damn good left-handed hitters. So Dave uh-huh. Price comes to me and says, hey, listen, after his first game start, I'll pitch you out of the bullpen. I said, perfect, perfect, let's do it. So, you know, that's – I mean, that's how he made his name coming up with the uh, Tampa that year. Yeah. So yep. the night before – uh, Yeah, when Estrada's pitching, he uh, – you know, we get him up in the pen, right? And yep. you know, Strada gets it out of the out, out, out of the inning. So anyway, I see him the next day. Here's a guy that's done his 220 innings, like he's done for every year. He's he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. He's going to make a, a mega fortune. You know, yep. I gotta, you know, I got to think of this guy too. So I said, I said that Sunday morning. I said, listen, if I get you up today, you're in a game. There's no more dry humps, right? I can't do that to you. And he said, I, I appreciate that. So the Texas Rangers fans are on uh, half asleep. And, the, and these guys that all hit Dickie really good, and we're gonna leave. And I'm thinking, you know what? No, they didn't. I can't wait too long. Anyway, anyway, I did this. Anyway, I, I cut through the <laughs> short story. So I go out to the mound to take Dickie out. All right, he's got, he's like he's shocked. He's, he should have been. I think everybody. Okay, was. it was it was the it was uh, the fifth inning. I think it's like he had four. It was like an out or two outs in the fourth. Yeah, yeah. It was either one or two outs in the inning, and Hinsu or not Hinsu, Chu. I forget his first. Uh, was it Hinsu? Yeah, he was coming up, you know. Yeah, but no, he just got a knock. It was a, his, uh, like his second hit of the day, and he had hit the only two balls hard the entire game. Well, it doesn't matter. Did, did, did you not see? Did you not watch that? <laughs> did you not watch that knuckleball over the years? One inning, it's good. Then one inning, made leave, man. It turns in as a BP pitch. Sorry, <laughs> and the ball flies in Texas. So anyway, I go out to the mound. Those that are listening. And, I, and uh, I'm sitting there, and R.A.'s looking at me, and I'm going, you know, you know, I was debating. It wasn't an easy thing to do, right? And I get out there, and you go, this is bullshit. I'm going, if I could have choked you, man, I wasn't on national TV, I would have grabbed you. By- <laughs> we had all your hair back. So anyway, he comes out, Dave comes in and gets out of here, right? And we won the game, by the way. That, that, that's all that matters. So we yeah, go to the dugout, the, the inning's over, and uh, we go, we, you walk by, and you know, that's one thing I loved about you. You know, we had that kind of relationship. You told me how you felt. You know, I got no problem, but you're yeah. gonna, you're gonna, I'm going to tell you how I feel, too. So you came no, by, no. We're, we're going, and you walked up the thing, and I went up. We talked a couple things. So anyway, the the beauty of the story is the following year where we're playing a game, right? 
and uh, all right, he was pitching, right? And the knuckleball, in all fairness to him, it's tough. You can't control that. You don't know what's coming and going. Yeah, we, get a, we get a nice little lead, and he uh, a couple of homers, boom, now we're tied or trailing, right? And so you come in the dugout, you're pissing and moaning about something, about, you know, blowing a lead or something. And I heard it. I'm sitting, You sit down. I, I walked over. I go, hey, uh, hey uh, would you repeat? What did you just say? And you, you know, I said, repeat it one more time. You told me about And I said, oh, really? You remember, you remember, what was it, 12 months ago in that freaking playoff game? That was my argument. You tell me what a dumbass I was and blah, blah. <laughs> so, so anyway Cito Gaston how would you describe your your style as a manager of course Gibby uh, always known as a player's manager but not afraid to get in your grill if necessary uh, and warranted uh, describe uh, over the course of your uh, managerial uh, career your style well I had the same style as Gibby but uh, I think one time uh, my style was to get the guys in the office and get in their face yeah. He was murdered. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I know sometimes it gets heated out there and, and, and you have to do what you have to do. Uh, I, I didn't, I let guys know that, you know what, I'm going to let you play. I'm behind you all the way. And I'm a manager. I'm a, I'm a player's manager. But when you go out there, you don't play properly. Or you don't want to play or you don't want to execute. Then when the game's over, I want you in my office, and I'll and I, I'll tell you what, I'll challenge you to a fight. If you want to fight, I'm right here. You know, <laughs> I'm, you got, I'm standing you right here. You guys could have been a good tag team with each other. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hey, I, I I agree with everything. Give it. I seen give it do. He's right on. He's right hey, on. Hey, Cito's much bigger than me, man. Them dudes working the best. Him. <laughs> they tried. They tried to get me up some little pint size. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm I'm talking to these two legends, right? Really, I mean. Both of you, two-time managers of the Blue Jays. Uh, Cito, you replaced Gibby as manager of the Jays in June of 2008. Hirings and firings are part of the game. You both know that. Uh, yeah. Both of you are so highly thought of and legends uh, in Blue Jays baseball. A question for both of you. Uh, tell us what you most respect about each other. I, I respect uh, I'm going to go first, man. I, go, ahead, I'm, go, I'm, ahead, I'm, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, it's never going to end. Hey, 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 first off, you know, the first time I met Cito, you know, he'd come down to spring, spring training. It, it was, you know, his uh, guest instructor, he'd come down for about a week. And that's where, that's where I met him. I thought, hey, you know, I always look for the character in guys. You know, you, you want them around. You know, it's, it's like, you know, he's just a good guy. The, the players gravitate towards him and, and all that. And then I just watch how he functioned with, you know, like I said, function with our players. And I've, I always I always try to watch the guys that had success, right? Cito's won two, back-to-back. How many guys can actually say that? The guys that have had success in this business, how do they act, you know? He's, he just, he's, he just he, every, we all have different personalities. There's no doubt about it. But the way Cito carried himself, the, guy, the guys, you know, they, they listened, they respected him. And so that, that, that was number one. And then you know what? Just, just here when I got when I was in Toronto and just hearing the stories about him and things like that, and and, and how how he treated me coming back because because that's never easy. Come to spring training, you're a manager, ex manager, and you got a new manager. That's not always easy at first until you get to know the guy. Those kind of things. And the uh, had tremendous respect for his playing career and his managing career, but more importantly, just a good guy that you like having around. You know, and to me, that's the most important thing. I'll give it those a very kind words. Thank you. I appreciate that. Appreciate you. Yeah. And you know what? I give it. I feel. I feel the same way about you. Is, is that I see how calm you are, even though people don't know that sometimes. 
uh, you're pretty, you're pretty, you're pretty laid back. And uh, I, you, as I said, you, are, you're a players manager. And also, when you when you need to get it, when you need to get in somebody's face, you get in their face. And, and you only do that when you need to. It's not everyday thing just to show people that you're tough oh. or whatever. And and I see the way you treat your players, the way they play for you. And you know what? I, I have to say this, that uh, uh, when I was coming to spring training during that time when you were managing, I, I, I should have kept that gig. That was a pretty good gig. I come up when I want to. I call and tell Jeff Russell, let give it no, I'm coming in. <laughs> that was a pretty good gig. I come in once a week and, and got paid the whole year round. So that was pretty good. Pretty good gig right there. Uh, <laughs> So uh, that, that was that, but, but the other part, the other part I, I seen in you that um, I, you care about the game. You really care about the game, and you care about people. And you know what? Uh, if they don't play, you let them know that you got to do better. You got to do better. And uh, you know what? You go back and think when I, when I when you got first fired, I took you took took over the job. And then when you got hired again, I was in Hawaii and I gave you a call, congratulated you again. I, yeah. I have always felt like you're a friend of mine. I have never felt like, and I hope you feel the same way. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we wasn't in comfort. Hey, we didn't fire each other. They fired us. So, it, it, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, uh, I, well, I, I, we got hired Cito's second time, right? And I could never understand why because I, I didn't have the hardware. When you got hired the second time, I, said, I understand he's got two championships. I said, so I told Alex Anthopoulos that I said, I said <laughs> you, you're trying to rehire me. You know, it's. You're you're gonna you're gonna get get crucified off for crying out loud! I got I got I got well, it. What? Yeah, you did. You guys went on and won, got into the playoffs about a couple of years. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. You know what? I, I tell you this uh, for Batista's uh, induction to the uh, Hall of uh, Excellence. Hey, Gibby went out before I did on the field, and I went out behind Gibby, and you couldn't tell the difference in the applause for 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 either one of us. It was the same. So they love you. They love you here too, Gibby. Jerry Howarth. John was very good. What I really appreciated about him was the easy rapport he had with his team. And yet he could be firm when he had to be too, but the players were very comfortable around him. And one thing uh, I always look for John and a manager was how do they delegate authority? And John was very good at delegating authority to all of his coaches and then letting his players play and his pitchers pitch. And they never had to look over their shoulders. They knew that John had their back and, that made it very easy for me day in and day out to see that. Alex Anthopoulos. And there's times where GM wants to do something the manager's not a fan of or manager wants to do something GM's not a fan of. It's a partnership. It really is. If you don't view it as a partnership, it isn't going to work no matter what. But what I appreciated was I knew the clubhouse was taken care of. It was never going to be drama. There was never going to be issues. He had his finger on the pulse. He had the respect of the players. They weren't going to you know, go afoul of him. And also there's a lot of things that he took care of behind closed doors that the media would never know about, right? Closed door meetings, this and that. I never needed to go check and say, oh, did you, did you bring so-and-so in? Did you just talk to this guy? It was already done. He was already 10 steps ahead of it. He knew when to pull guys in. He knew when he had to make, I don't want to say make a scene, but I thought his instincts and his feel were very good that if he had to do something on the bench in front of the cameras because the player put him in that position to do it, he had the instincts to do it. He wasn't afraid to do it. And then he also knew when the time was to do it behind closed doors in the office. And a lot of guys don't have that. You know, they don't have the confidence. They don't, they're not sure. And the players can smell that and see through that in a minute. And look, beyond that, I thought he managed the bullpen really well. Um, and I remember he, anytime if someone wanted to criticize, I'd always tell them, your job is to win the game. 
You won the game. I don't care about what this guy's opinion is, that guy's opinion, and get the job done. This is a results-oriented, you know, I think I think it's Winston Churchill as the quote, um, no matter how beautiful the process, you should consider the, the, the results, you know. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm into everything else that looks great, but it's a results-oriented business. And at the end yeah. of the day, you got to get it done and have the respect of the players. And you know, even when we hired him a second time, and I knew it would be a controversial hire just because you're coming off a bad year and so on. I called some of his former players and poked around on it. And, um, you know, they all raved about him, all of them. And I, did, I didn't just pick a position player. Well, I, I went all angles, reliever, starter, position player. Everybody came back the same way. And look, it's, like Gibby said, you know, sometimes you don't have the right roster, this and that. You know, change was made when it was made. But he was always good, you know, and he just didn't have the roster at times or the division was tough. Really tough yeah. back then, and uh, he just needed another opportunity. But it wasn't because um, it was giving him a chance. It was because he was good, you know. And there's a lot of examples: Joe Torre, Terry Francona, that the first time maybe didn't go as well as they, it needed to go. The next time around, you see what they really could could do. And those guys, you know, some of them obviously Torre's in the Hall of Fame, and you know, I think Terry Francona is going to and and be, end up be, being there. So, um, are you saying I think there's just so the much that goes into it? Yeah, I think you're going to fall a little short. But <laughs> Devin Travis, so uh, tell us what it was like to be a player uh, working with John uh, as the skipper and also that personal relationship that you have developed with him over the years. Yeah, it's it's been crazy. You know, I, I, I got traded to Toronto, like you said, in, in, in the offseason of 2014 leading into 2015. And I was a 23-year-old kid who who – was just traded north of the border. I did not even have a passport when I first got traded. I'll never forget Alex Santopoulos saying, hey, you got a passport, right? And I'm like, uh, I don't even know how to get a passport. So um, anyways, that, that's how it started. And 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 I just think about my my first spring training and how nervous I was to, to walk in that locker room full of personality. You got Jose Batista, you got Jose Reyes, you got Edwin Encarnacion, you got Russell Martin, you got guys everywhere. And then you know, there's this little guy that's probably got no business being in that locker room um, trying to fit in. And, and I think as, as a player and, and as someone that can look back on my career, you know, the the, the, the head guy in, in, in that locker room is your manager because he's the person who has the ability to, to set the tone and set the personality of the team. And, and I think Gibby is his most, his most special trait is he's himself. Uh, there's coaches who have to try to – be different people to manage certain guys. Gibby is Gibby every single day. Win, loss. He walks through the locker room. He talks smack going by. Uh, he just makes you feel like you belong. And, and I think that's the thing that I feel the most grateful for for Gibby was every single day from the first day I was number 68 or 74 in spring training. Um, he made me feel like I belonged. And, and uh, you know, that's a big part of, of, of fitting into a team as, as a young guy. Mr. Bo Bichette. I do remember one thing pretty vividly. vividly. Um, I played, so he's the home run he's talking about was my second spring training game. The first oh. one, the first one he didn't start me, but. Uh, oh. that's, <laughs> no. hey, that's why I got fired, man. I wasn't very smart. There it is. <laughs> no, no, I get it. Um, but no, I hit a, I tapped the ball to the pitcher. Um, and obviously, I mean, I pride myself playing hard, but of course my first spring training game i'm gonna run as hard as i can no matter what i hit you know so uh 
hit a little cap to the pitcher and I took off, went to first base. And, you know, like, I mean, I get it. It's baseball. I'm not going to hit a homer every time, but I wanted to hit a homer. And uh, so I'm coming back to the dugout and I'm, I'm kind of mad. And uh, Gibby just, he just told me, Hey man, way to run. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, okay. I did something, you know, and it's not all about the performance and the result, you know, it's someone saw something and uh, I appreciated that. This was quite a story back then. You're, uh, I'd like to just ask you both your remembrances of that story. And, you know, obviously you guys are here today. Josh, you're writing uh, uh, the forward for Gibby's new book coming out. So yep. you got a, yep. you got a great chemistry, great friendship. But back then, yep. on that day in August, uh, things got heated. So why don't yeah. you guys go talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, to kind of give – to sum up what Gibby was saying earlier with me because I felt uh, as a leader of the team and as a, as a player who genuinely cared, no doubt. put it, put his heart and soul into every game and wanted to win every single game uh, that there were definitely times to where, and this is what I appreciated about Gibby is I, I could say what I felt to Gibby and Gibby would be like, all right, yeah, well, I was thinking this and I'd be like, all right, well, look, cool. Like, let, as long as we're on the same game plan here. So I know what I'm fighting for. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, sometimes, you know, give, both of us are rednecks down, down at heart. So, you know, we're going to, there, there could be a little red ass in there. Or country both boys. Of country us. boys. Anyway. Yeah, country boys, whatever you want to say. And as uh, to where we could, uh, you know, get the red ass at times. And I'd say self to Gibby. And for the most part, Gibby would just brush me off. And we'd, he, he'd say, hey, come back here, have a beer. And so after the game, we'd go and talk. And, you know, we, we would, uh, you know, let cooler heads prevail at times. But. Gibby always knew that I cared, and I think that's genuinely – and oh, I knew yeah. that he cared, and I knew he cared about me. So we could have that sometimes banter between each other as a player-manager, and as Gibby said, I've heard him say something, you know, other times that, you know, he was kind of a father figure for me, which, you know, that, that, was, that was true in some cases. Uh, but that day in New York, I want to say we just – it was our third game, and – about our 24 hours the day before we had a double header and we were at, I was at the field from like eight or nine o'clock in the morning till two o'clock in the morning the next day. Cause we had two or three rain rain delays in that game. And we were up like six games in the division going into, I think it was September into August, early September. And the Yankees guys over there, like they're, they're sitting there guys and, uh, yeah, I, I, they're, they're, hey, they're Babe Ruth would have played. Guys. Babe Ruth would have played. And, and, and I come to the lineup the next day, and I was like, damn. I'm like, we literally are playing. And we, I think we went extra innings the second game, like 12 innings. So it was oh, 21 right. innings. It was 21 innings in, in one day. And the next day, we had like a 12-30 start. <laughs> And I'm like, I'm just gassed at the time. And Gibby's got me in the lineup, and my and I'm, you know, I wasn't too, I wasn't very pleasant to begin the day with. I had probably about four or five hours of sleep, 
and I get first at bat. CC blows like eighty nine past me, and I'm like, "What the hell am I doing?" <laughs> and Gibby kind of hears me under my breath. He's like, "What'd you say?" And I'm like, "I don't even know why the hell you put me in the lineup today. I got nothing." He's like, "Oh, you never know. I've seen you had nothing before, and you go deep." And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> I got nothing in the tank. <laughs> and he's like, ah, oh, come on. Get it together. I'm like, all right. So second at bat, he blows me away again with like 88. <laughs> and I come into the dugout. And I didn't throw my bat. I hit it up against the rail where Gibby was standing. And, and Gibby got the ass at me. And he's like, he comes down. He's like, hey, hey, was that directed towards me? I'm like, no, Gibby. I just... Got my doors blown off for the second time. I'm on like four hours of sleep right now. Give me a break. And uh, <laughs> he looks at me. And uh, I didn't say those words. That's what I was feeling. I probably said something where I popped off. And then oh, that's where Gibby got. Yeah, I said something that I popped off to him. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I've. Didn't back down, and, and Gibby sure in the hell wasn't backing down. And uh, I just remember two. Like I remember totally first coming over there and trying to stop him. I'm like, totally get the hell out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then two, and then Tulo came over and grabbed me up. He's like, "Hey, this is New York. You don't need to do that." And I'm like, wow. "All right, yep, all right." Just because you know it was wrong day for me, and probably wrong day for Gibby as well, and. They're always yeah, wrong day for me. Well, yeah, things, <laughs> things, get, things get heated, heated the moment. Obviously, you know, your yeah. description of all the no sleep and the innings played and all yeah. of that pressure. Uh, but you had some interesting comments uh, after uh, that situation yeah. took place that I think we got a sound bite of that we're going to play. Uh, but, yeah, let's. Uh, you had an interesting way of uh, describing why that happened and what happened. I just come back to the dugout and hit my bat against the thing, and you know, Gibby asked me what kind of cologne I was wearing. And I said, I said, it's this new cologne called Tom Ford. I just got it. He's like, really? Oh, so he kind of got pretty close to me and I guess got a good whiff of it. And I was like, hey, man, back up. So uh, I was like, I'll give you some after the game. So then we separated. That wraps up this special Gabbing with Gibby. Next week, we'll feature more segments highlighting some other great guests and memories from the Gibby show. And now inspired by our friends at Miller Lite, it's time to toast someone who got the announcement of a lifetime this past week. This past Sunday, Major League Baseball announced the induction of a contemporary era inducting into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The inductee in this special vote was defined as someone whose greatest impact came from 1980 to the present day. An eight-member ballot featured former Jays manager Cito Gaston, plus Lou Pinella, umpires Joe West and Joe Montague, and executives Hank Peters and Bill White. Election to the Hall required 75% of the votes from at least 12 of the 16 committee members. And the person who was inducted uh, with his gray hair and mustache, known for his crusty demeanor and his penchant for smoking cigarettes during games, Jim Leland, 
looked the part of a true baseball skipper, but he was also a winner, racking up the 18th highest win total in MLB history, eight postseason appearances, three league pennants, a World Series championship with the 1997 Marlins, and three Manager of the Year honors. Now Leland, one of the game's more beloved and respected leaders, will have his image on a National Baseball Hall of Fame plaque next summer. For his induction, this week's toast goes to Jim Leland. And we also have to give a shout-out to Cito. Uh, Cito uh, winning two World Series in a row. Uh, He should be on that ballot next year. So hopefully at this time next year, everyone could welcome Cito into the Hall of Fame as well. Uh, But congratulations, Jim Leland, who was the only person selected by this executive committee. Corner booths, sticky floors, weekdays that feel like weekends. You never forget the way some things taste. Miller Lite, great taste, 90 calories. Tastes like Miller time. That'll wrap up this edition of the Gibby Show. I want to thank our executive producer, Mark Moliere, and thanks to our creative director, Chris Sabunia. You can find me at Twitter, at John Arezzi, also on Instagram as well. And if you're a fan of pro wrestling, check out my two other podcasts, John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight and Memories from Madison Square Garden, available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or on YouTube. For John Gibbons, this is John Arezzi. Remember, we'll be back for the rest of the month with new shows covering all the breaking news surrounding the Blue Jays with some very special guests. Thank you for listening to The Gibby Show, and we'll talk more baseball with you right here next week.